Dino DNA is not really applicable to this question, but in honor of Jurassic World or kind of Jurassic Park, according to Katie's crazy logic, what is the best pre-CGI, aka practical special effect? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with whatever it took to make Lily Tomlin shrink in The Incredible Shrinking Woman because I still fear garbage disposals. I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with The Exorcist when that little girl barfs. Blah! <laughs> I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with The Thing. Uh, probably the spider head. Why not? Nightmares? Nightmares. Blah. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 74 for Wednesday, June 9th, 2015. I'm back to tell you it's still the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. Uh, before we get started with this week's show, I want to make you all a special offer. If you leave us a review and then somehow get us your email address, we will leave you a voicemail of us all singing the <laughs> Jurassic Park theme song. Poorly. I did not realize. You did not tell us before nope, I know. saying this. This is, this so is a surprise great. offer to our loyal listeners. Find a way to give us your email. We will send you an audio file of us singing the Jurassic Park theme song. It'll sound a lot less pleasant than Patches singing. But it will be unique and it will be all yours. Uh, leave us a review. We love them. They are very helpful. And... Uh, and tell new people to listen. I think that's key, right? Oh, now yeah, now that we've too. gotten you hooked and you can't give it up, like we're we're basically your Marvel franchise, listeners. You can't say no to us. Look, yeah. Spielberg face. This is the show. Yeah, it's look, amazing. Look in awe at, upon our show, and then allow your friends to feel that same wonder. And uh, yeah, leave us a review. Tell your friends, and uh, keep spreading the word. Seventeen thirty, I'm like, hey, what's up? Hello, since you're pretty ass, soon as you came in the door, I just wanna chill, got a sack for us to roll. Married to the money, introduced her to my stove. Showed her how to whip, and now she remixing for low. She my child. Opening this week is one of many documentaries or films in general from the Sundance Film Festival that I still haven't seen because I didn't make it to Park City this year. Um, but The Wolf Pack is one that has kind of captured my imagination since Sundance. And uh, it's the one that I'm really intrigued to hear more about because not having seen this movie, which is about, and guys, forgive me if I get this wrong, a uh, group of brothers in New York City who have basically been completely cut off from the outside world by their parents and kind of only understand the world through pop culture, which they reenact in their houses. Uh, it seems completely bizarre and like something that is so strange it has to be true but the exploit the nature of whether or not this film is exploitative or how they found these kids or anything like that continues to kind of blow my mind and uh, we're not reviewing it formally this week but I kind of wanted to basically quiz you guys about this movie this fascinated me and uh, you know give you a chance to review it and also uh, tell me if my fascination is warranted you guys both saw the wolf pack at Sundance right uh yeah uh yeah, we did see it at Sundance, but not together. Actually, that separately. is not that is not true. You and I saw it before Sundance because <laughs> we're privileged we people, together. and we did see it together. Right. So I got Asshole. both parts of that wrong. Asshole. Um, I got that statement as wrong as it could be gotten. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think this is definitely one of those cases where um, the 
backstory behind the making of the documentary is a lot more interesting than the documentary itself. And also the information that the documentary, um, the documentary alludes to, or, or the information that falls sort of in the crevices of what Crystal Moselle, if I can recall yep. the name accurately off the top Correct. of my head, uh, omits is, is a lot more interesting at times than what she includes. But yeah, I mean, the basic story, if I remember from the press notes is that she, or the movie um, that you saw. Or, well, no, because the no. Her, how she met these kids is that's not true. In the that movie. is true. Um, it it never You're going way back to answer that question, right? Is that she is sort of well-to-do young woman who was walking around the streets of New York? I think uh, she was in the park, right? And and had the time and ability to follow her muse if it happened to appear to her, and saw these uh, <laughs> interesting-looking group of young boys who were all appeared to be very similar in I believe they were dressed were in suits uh, right, as we later learn uh, is a reservoir dogs and, reference right and she saw them and you know I, all the credit in the world to her for having the courage to go up to them and uh, initiate a conversation learn a little bit about their story they I guess over the course of a few conversations she learned that they live in this apartment that they they don't um, had the opportunity to leave very often and she sort of embedded herself in their lives uh, to the possible chagrin of their potentially abusive father um, and their uh, sort of wallflower of a mother and she uh, spent a few years telling their story and uh, as, bad as the boys were sort of the oldest of them were on the brink of adulthood and and this situation no longer really being sustainable um that's really where the movie gets most of its friction and yeah what's interesting katie that that you mentioned that it captured your imagination why i'm curious well the entire notion the premise of the film that these boys are living in new york city but uh cut off from the outside world and this kind of like Nell is not the best example, but that's the first one that comes to mind. Um, but also that she happened to meet them on the street. Like, there's something about that story that doesn't seem quite right. And then I'm also always immediately skeptical of movies in which, like, characters are living out their lives via movie references. And the fact that this is happening <laughs> in real life is so intriguing. It's like, be kind, rewind, but a real story. I don't know. Like, all of the details just felt so kind of insane, which I guess is what you really want in a documentary, something and, that seems and, so crazy that you have to see it for yourself and know that it's real. I think a lot of that is there. I mean, these kids were genuinely spending their time while... I mean, their dad is an extremist uh, of, of the Hare Krishna following, right? So he, he just thought the outside world was uh venomous. It was It was bad for their health. They shouldn't go outside. So what did they do? They just you know, made costumes out of cardboard and transscribed scripts from the movies they owned because their dad was a huge movie buff. Uh, and, so he and wasn't opposed to culture? He was just like the physical no, the guy, outside world? Yeah, the guy is completely screwed up. I mean, he's t living... I, and and the documentary doesn't really go that far into this, I think. There's strange fact, family dynamic and how he kind of rides... Uh, you know, the government money that he gets. And, it's. I would argue it's kind of irresponsible in that it... Uh, implies heavily that he abused his sons but doesn't really press on the matter further um it i i wasn't particularly comfortable with that choice but well the movie ends up wandering in a lot of different directions and it goes far past the point where i thought it would end uh it, it seems misdirected and, and it can't be contained like crystal doesn't know exactly where 
or the beginning of the story is and the end should be for this film. And it does suffer a little from this kind of noble savage aspect where it's so interest it's so cute that these kids would do these movies and look at them dressed oh, up like, like Batman. Cute. It's cute about it. See, that seems really isn't strange it, to me it? for it to be like alleging abuse and also being like, oh, it's adorable. Well, that's why this movie is uh, in conflict with itself a little bit, but all the parts remain fascinating. And I think that's why it's a troubled documentary and still an, an interesting one. I mean, is this bringing up yeah. the same problem that I think we've discussed about documentaries a couple of times? Like, even if it's an interesting story, that doesn't make it a good documentary because it has to be well made. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's very much the case here. Um, there are very. A lot of choices can be invisible in documentaries where it's it's hard to necessarily intuit how things were crafted. Um, and so I think I'm overstating the case when I say that I don't agree with almost any of the, the, the choices that Moselle makes in the movie. And I didn't really find any of them to be effective because I don't know. I'm sure she made lots of invisible uh, choices in shaping this hunk of footage into the movie that it is now that allowed it to be streamlined in an effective way. But yeah, it really, it's hard to think of a portrait of this family that is less substantive mm. um, than than the Wolfpack is. I was really disappointed by this movie, but uh, I, it's, you know, a documentary can be buoyed by the quality of its subjects and the quality, the subjects here are undeniably fascinating. Um, and so it's, it's hard for me to recommend not seeing the movie right it it helps that that these kids i mean and perhaps this is uh, an extension of their internal filmmaking and and internal stardom but they they work well on camera like you want to watch these kids you know roam the streets or tell their stories or spend time each other you know you can watch these kids make dinner and that culture is fascinating and their mother is a very interesting character this woman who kind of was whisked away from the midwest and brought to new york and hold up ever since she really hasn't seen her family and but all she does is is love these children and take care of them all of this is very fascinating and then the family dynamic is strong but then you start seeing things that are on the fringes like we said she doesn't really get into this dad who uh, uh, chooses to be on camera it's not it doesn't seem that he neglected uh or, or declined to appear in the film he just doesn't until maybe quite later in the film and then there's also a sister character who she doesn't get into at all who huh. has some sort of mental problems and uh right. it's totally not part of the narrative because it's about these brothers making films or it, it thinks it is hmm. yeah and I, I when we got to sundance i was sitting in the headquarters on the second floor and i looked over the railing as the kids from the Wolfpack came in and they had just gotten off the first plane that they'd ever been on. Um, and you could tell they were sort of shell-shocked. And it was far more interesting to watch than any other sort of celebrity encounter that I had at the festival. Um, That's happened at Sundance and... multiple times to me, where you see people who are featured in a documentary who are being kind of thrust into the world of it. And it, I mean... For me, I see that sometimes, and I wonder if it's almost as as exploitative as the film itself. But well, you know, imagine that in a case where the subjects had never been on a plane before, had only you know a few dozen times been out of their apartment, and now are at the center of this maelstrom. And it's uh, and I think that the story, and it begins to sort of touch on this towards the end, where one of the brothers gets involved in the film industry in his own way uh but i think that this movie would have been a lot more interesting if had there been some way for it to be released episodically to premiere 
in the state that it was at Sundance and then have another chapter. Not that I'm advocating for a sequel necessarily, but um, I, yeah, I think there, there, there's a lot of potential here and a lot of, a lot of it is missed, but... Um, it's all, yeah, it's almost that format it's, demands that it be turned into this kind of cute... I mean, cute may be the wrong word, but uh, we, we see a lot of... Uh, what am I, what am I saying here? It is the indie mold. It is just, it's being forced into a peg that fits this kind of like Sundance brand where there's quirky characters and there's, you know, a bright, sunny ending to the whole picture. Like there's mm. hope. Um, well, I mean, this is real life, so it doesn't necessarily have to, it doesn't have to be these other movies that are fictional. It, she's trying to make a fiction film out of these guys, I think. Hmm. Do you feel like that's inevitable yeah. that there's going to be the fiction remake? I I I can't I can't imagine. I would not uh, <laughs> see the appeal there. I mean, um, we live in a world where Robert Zemeckis is making a big budget remake of Man on Wire, starring <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt with an atrocious French accent. Yeah, but there's a there's an action component to that that I wouldn't yeah, but see. There was in the a heist, There was a compelling heist component in the original. There was also a great Michael Nyman score, and the and you know <laughs> there are all sorts of things that it's. Anyway, I think I think uh, I, what I would worry about with the Wolfpack is now people clinging to these kids because it's so great that they make films as if that's like a stand-in for what we love about movies them being f trapped inside and sweeting their own films in their spare time i you can already tell i mean as promotion for the wolf pack they were getting these kids to remake movie trailers and stuff that seems really weird to me yeah and i think we'll see more of it in fact i know we will so that's odd yeah, that seems to be like the damaging thing about pop culture that we talk about all the time, the idea of only filtering life through the lens of what you've seen on screen and how damaging that can be. So that's not encouraging. Yes, we'll be seeing that soon in Jurassic World. Oh, boy. Mm. <laughs> Downer note, next Jeez. segment. Friday's Jurassic World, which obviously inspires a lot of us who look back at Jurassic Park. There were two sequels that came after Jurassic Park. I uh, have seen uh, half of the second one uh, an hour ago, and I don't think I've ever seen the third that's one. A, so. That's crazy, because you love Jurassic Park. No, I, I had seen, talked I, about I, it on this I, podcast. I had seen The Lost World. I, I just saw it, I saw it in theaters, Park, and I had forgotten everything I, about it. I think this speaks to the idea, and I'll be very quick about this, that Jurassic Park is not a franchise, although technically it is a franchise. It's one incredible movie, and then... The yeah, it's about like, learning your lesson, and then... And then forgetting your lesson it. over and but over. It, yep. it doesn't feel like a franchise. Oh. It feels like this this one monolithic thing, and then just other things sort of, like, tumorously growing uh, out of it. Anyway. So what I wanted to discuss, basically just throw it out there very simply, uh, Jurassic World... Is a perfect movie. Discuss. Why? Why is it a perfect movie for you? I think you've mentioned this too, but why? Why does it remain one? I, or why does you keep going back to it? As you talk, I'm just gonna hum this, the theme under under you. <laughs> That's why it's a perfect movie, John Williams. Yeah, it, I mean, John Williams has a lot for it. Uh, it does. And it has its set of clear objectives. It accomplishes all of them. It's got incredibly economical screenwriting and characters and. It, I mean, everything that it sets out to do, it accomplishes, and the special effects still look good somehow. And I don't, I don't even know how, but they do. 
I think it's by building something magnificent, right? I mean, it's exactly what Walt Disney would tell you about animatronics and what they bring to a theme park experience. You can interact and see them in person, and you're still amazed by animatronics. To see them on screen and to see them in an extravagant way that a park setting wouldn't be able to capture, um, it, it stands the test of time. So you agree it's perfect movie? Do you believe? It, do you believe in perfect movies? No, absolutely not. There's always something <laughs> that could be tweaked, or I don't know. I, I don't think I believe in perfect movies. There's nothing I would change about Jurassic Park. I know that much, and that I guess there's nothing I'd change the about screaming of Day, the children. So. Yeah, see, there you go. <laughs> uh, there's nothing you change about Jurassic Park. Not that I can. Th- I mean, and again, like you would still have the hacking scene, for instance. Yeah, I where... mean, I think I don't mind that it's of its time. Uh-uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, I think there are components of Jurassic Park that I don't really... I don't really like Wayne Newton. Or Wayne Newton. What? <laughs> Wayne yeah. Newman? Wayne... No. Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight. Wayne Knight. Wayne Newton from uh, Mars Attacks. <laughs> How do you not love the scene where the Dilaposaurus, or whatever the fuck it's called, gets him in the face? He calls it a stupid bird. It's a really, <laughs> so uh, it's a really good villain death. Maybe I've Jurassic seen Park it too many times, and I just want to get to my favorite part. So I'm sure that's... What's your favorite part? My favorite part of the movie is probably the Tyrannosaurus Rex attack in the beginning. Mm. It's it's like the most perfectly staged set piece in all of blockbuster No cinema. argument for I mean, the raptors in the kitchen? The Raptors in the Kitchen is not far behind, which is part of the reason why Jurassic Park is so incredible. But actually, when we I saw mean, that in 3D, that scared the shit out of me again, and it was actually it was well done in 3D, like seeing the Raptors come at you and having the mirror shots. That is perfectly orchestrated. There is no better advertisement for the glory of Jurassic Park than a new Jurassic Park movie. <laughs> um, I mean, watching watching the gyroscope scene in Jurassic. Remember, World, we're reviewing well, really it later. No sequences. spoilers. I know, I know, but I'm. Just, uh, you just understand all the better the mastery involved in setting up the suspense in, in of the Tyrannosaur scene, for example. And a movie um, daring and, to have its actors stick their hands well, into a mound of poop. Well, it's not all that Genius. similar from Jaws. And yeah. the, mod, the dinosaurs may have. Poop in that movie? Yes, the dinosaurs may have worked better than Bruce the shark did, but um, the fact. The, the, the limitations of the technology are one of the reasons why they're only on screen for a grand total of 15 minutes. But I guarantee you that all three of us and probably many of the people listening to this can remember each of those 15 minutes. Wait, the vividly. dinosaurs in Jurassic Park only get 15 yeah. minutes of screen time. 15 minutes of screen that time. That's pretty amazing. That is amazing. Um, and they, they make every second count. Uh, and that, I mean, that, like, because in, in, like, the Velociraptor clever girl scene, for example, that entire sequence it hinges on the threat of Velociraptors. They are on screen for a total of what, like eleven seconds. I mean, um, it's 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 a masterpiece of, of but it's also the, uh, understanding that like oh, having the audience bring their own imagination to the table and understanding like with the goat, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, your what your imagination is cooking up in that scene, even once you've already seen it, is. So much more powerful than some sort of CG monstrosity that they could use to. And yet, to and yet, the CG thing. moments, the money shots of Jurassic Park are, are you know, fully digital. The the first, the big Spielberg face moment when they see the Brachiosaurus is yep. eating from the trees. That is CGI. Or the uh, the the Gallimimus 
chase scene is CGI. Why is it Gallimimus? You know, Which one are you talking about? The, what? Yeah, they're talking about Gallimimus is the running around in a herd, and they're oh they're, those guys. Okay, yeah. They have to get under the limb. A, all that stuff still looks pretty pristine, despite it being 1993 CGI. Yeah, but you also feel. I mean, I was watching it on TV probably four, four times this weekend, <laughs> and the faster something moves in Jurassic Park of the, of the digital creations, the worse it looks. And so the Gallimimus don't particularly fare or have not aged particularly well. However. You feel so palpably how vulnerable the characters are in that sequence, how they are uh, without a car, without any sort of defense mechanism in the middle of this field, um, even before the T-Rex shows up. It's You feel worried for them, and uh, I think that is a huge part of why yes. that particular scene continues to hold up. Um, I will say that as incredible as the Jurassic Park theme is, which is, uh, I would say, a better and uh, more insufferably catchy song than anything in the Star Wars movies, for example. Uh, it wasn't even the best theme that he wrote that year. That honor would go to the theme from Schindler's List. Uh, so everyone was really at the top of their game, which goes a long way. We really need to do uh, a uh, Schindler's List Jurassic Park double feature conversation at some point. Just reckon with those two movies as having come out the same year which because i'm always i'm always somehow surprised and fascinated that they were i think because uh, they're anyway, on the opposite ends of each other yeah he was able to do the, the short the short answer would be yes I, I, perfect or not whatever rhetoric you want to use it's as good as as that kind of movie gets well jurassic park go see it on amc right now probably years since movies like Zach Braff's whatever that thing was called and the Veronica Mars movie. <laughs> uh, Which is really the perfect title for somewhat, it. Somewhat, I'm, no, not I'm still here. You're here? You're you're here? Who gives a shit? We, you had it right the first time. <laughs> hold on, hold on. It's, oh, we're still, this. it has it's, a grammatical you are error here? You is no, here? It's, <laughs> I has I, cheeseburger. <laughs> the film. I, hold on, hold on. We, we has I, you love <laughs> feelings. Hold on, I'm gonna get there. Something about here. I wish, wish I was wish here. Wish I was here. Wish I was here. Wish I was here. Two oh, million dollars to make that. Yeah. So that that movie made a ton of money to make itself made. That's a Veronica Mars movie, and uh, there was a sense of all this uh, limitless potential of Kickstarter to make people's movies happen. And, you know, there are lots and lots of successful, very tiny indies that have been funded on Kickstarter because they were raising $5,000 or whatnot. But there's been a recent rash of high-profile Kickstarter failures or apparent failures, including uh, Uwe? Uwe? Uwe Bowl? Uwe. Uwe. Whose uh, Kickstarter has failed Uwe. and he uh, publicly Kickstarter ranted. for Rampage 3. Let's be clear here so that he can eventually... Fuck you all. <laughs> I have enough money to golf for the rest of my life. <laughs> And no one gives a fuck about Rampage 3. Oh, Rampage 3. And uh, that's what he's going to do for the rest of his life. Uh, Abel Ferrara is also trying to kickstart a movie called Siberia with Willem Dafoe, which is uh, described as a subjective and objective journey into the subconscious, which you know just makes me stunned that it can't raise the uh, $500,000. Hey, if you liked raise. Inception, try that's true. Abel Ferrara's Siberia. So 
there are, I mean, these are various individual examples and there's no proving that Kickstarter is dead because there are still plenty of successful Kickstarters. But I wonder if this does tell us something about the really severe limitations of crowdfunding that I think a lot of people brought up when there were these crowdfunding success stories, the idea that if you leave it to the crowd, the only things that will get funded are the really obvious plays, things that have a built-in audience like the Veronica Mars movie or Zach Braff somehow. Um, and if this means that really we can't rely on this and the world of independent financing is still going to remain murky and completely disconnected from the audience because it can't work the way that we thought it might. I don't know, Katie. I think that sometimes... <laughs> Sorry, it's a little more like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Uh, Please fund well, twins too. You know, uh, a part of me thinks that this is, uh, you know, people vote with their with their dollars. And while this is a sweeping generalization, we'll talk about projects where I don't believe this is necessarily the case. I think that what you were both experiencing here is a public that is not particularly interested in seeing Rampage 3. Uh, and uh, that that is something that filmmakers are going to occasionally have to confront. Now, the public isn't always right, as we saw with Sack Barf's Wish... <laughs> Wish Sorry, you were someone called them. It was the most juvenile thing, but someone referred to them as sack barf, and it, it still it just it seems so much more fitting. I can't get away from it. Um, but uh, right, so the audience isn't always to be trusted. Um, that's how you end up with Indominus Rex. But jeez, guys, the, more th- spoilers for our Jurassic World review. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's probably the case there. I think with with um, the difficulty that they're having with raising money to complete Orson Welles's last film. Uh, the Other Side of the Wind, that's a film that I think a lot of cinephiles would be a lot more interested in seeing. There's probably more demand for, um, but oh. there are other, but there's also, I mean, with, with you a bowl, it's, I, I think, and this is similar to The Other Side of the Wind, like an Orson Welles film, regardless of the state of the project, doesn't feel like something that I should have to pay to get made. It's something that I happily pay to see. But I think there might be some discordance with, like, I donated to it, but I think that there might be some discordance with the idea. The average person is saying um, that, that coming from such a, a an important figure, it doesn't seem to line up with the idea of, of crowdfunding. And even once Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach made a little video pleading for people to donate, uh, the campaign is still lagging very, very far behind. Um and with you, Bull, I think it's the same way in, in a different shade. I think that uh, people would watch a Yuba Bull movie if it were on VOD some. I, I would. <laughs> uh, and and they, would, they might watch it with their hanging out with their friends. They have nothing to do, and it's on television. They might, even under the circumstances under which they would pay money to see it, I don't think that a Yuba Bull film, and forgive me if, if he has had previous success with Kickstarter that I'm not aware of, uh, or with crowdfunding and other varieties, but... I don't think it's something that necessarily people would pay to get made that they would want to invest in. Because again, you're making an investment in these things. And you're and also saying like, something about yourself. I felt like crowdfunding is like the status thing where you're like, I am part of this club and who is trying to be part of the UA Bowl club. Yeah. You don't want to associate mm-hmm. yourself with UA Bowl. You want to like sneak away and watch it. <laughs> it's, it's like, I, I, I want to eat this sausage, but I don't want to pay UA Bull to slaughter pigs in you front of me. You don't want to watch him make And it. have my name be on, yeah. on, on the, the certificate, pig. on the meat certificate. Yeah, you, you did, were you just saying that you didn't want to feel responsible yeah. for these <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Like, I would happily feel, I'd be proud to be responsible for my $20, whatever it was, for 
making the other side of the wind happen, although there's an element there where people who are not Orson Welles, obviously, are completing it, and I don't know if you would endorse the work, whatever. Well, I don't, I don't, but, I don't blame... Uh, I don't want to feel responsible for... Your we, we don't blame people for not throwing money at Orson Welles' last film, right? I mean, we're, we're not saying that people are overlooking this in favor of other projects, which, I mean, I, I guess they are, because we live in the age of clickbait filmmaking with the the advent of kickstarter which means a film like uh filmmaking yeah clickbait filmmaking which uh produced the horrific horrific calvin and hobbes documentary that you can watch on netflix which i can't even remember the title of i mean a movie about nothing truly it's just a bunch of talking heads saying that they like calvin and hobbes now that movie got completely funded on kickstarter and spawned countless clones there's a back to the future wannabe documentary out there what's it about the making of back to the future well what the fuck is the story of back to the about future the well, making of back to the future is yeah. about being a back to the future fan well it's gonna be both it's it's supposed to be this testament to back to the future and it's gonna like interview bob gale who fucking everyone's interviewed bob gale sorry you know there's no story there people aren't telling stories with these films that they're they're just trying to get something made and they see kickstarter and indiegogo helping them make something and if you can tap into a subject that the internet will click on click with then they'll go after that um and they do miss the orson wells wells last film uh in favor of you know a film about george miller's justice league well i liked mad max but i don't need to see that movie because no matter what the story is it's not going to be interesting it's just going to be another development hell story you don't think it would be lost in la mancha Something tells me no, because they barely even made it. There's like three cast photos that float around on Twitter all the time. And that's pretty much the extent of George Miller's Justice League. But to bring it back to Orson Welles' last film, I I just don't... You know, there is a misconception that people could just pay for this themselves. But touching on a subject that we went way back on this podcast when the New York Times wrote about there being too many movies, this is the problem with Kickstarter now. There's just too many Kickstarters. There's too many Indiegogos. Um, and, and not enough purpose, not enough of a sales pitch. Frank Marshall, who produced Jurassic World, <laughs> is one of the people behind Orson Welles' last film, getting it restored, and he's not even trying. This page is not trying to mount a campaign. Everyone just thinks Orson Welles' name is enough of a sell. No one's trying with Indiegogo and Kickstarter. That part of it's really crazy to me. I mean, I know that, like, there's this misconception that, like, everyone in Hollywood has limitless money and, like, therefore anything should be able to get made. But Frank Marshall really has a ton of money. Like, him giving his name to this only makes me think, like, why isn't he cutting a check to preserve film the way that, like, <laughs> Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese have? Like, why not just do it, Frank Marshall? What, you think being the husband of the woman who runs Lucasfilm just gets <laughs> you it, gobs of money? Profitable? They're not making anything. Yeah, but I also, I think that they're beyond... I think that if you're, if, I think what Patrick is saying about mounting a campaign is very important. I think that they need to create a sense of excitement and momentum around it if they want people, people to participate. Orson Welles' name will get you somewhere, but only so far. I think that they need to create the sense of a moment happening. And the video, the sort of lackadaisical video that Anderson and Bombeck did wasn't enough. Uh, you have to sustain that. You have to, you know, you have to make an event out of it or, Frank Marshall has to fund it himself. But, um, I, I don't, I, I don't think that you can just dump something out there, no matter how big a deal it is, and how much, you know, the the movie gods uh, with the Z should mm. will it into existence. It's not going to get there on its own. Also, doesn't it bug you that someone who is as great a showman as Orson Welles is getting such like a lackadaisical treatment? Like he would be 
fucking pulling out the stops. He'd be like faking murders to get this thing out there. Well, what's what's kind of sad about it is that. Wait, hold on. Why would faking murders know. have? I, was, I'm, I'm I went to F for fake, and then I went to like I think I went from F to fake <laughs> to like actual Pulitzer. Like I really mix up a lot of Orson Welles in there. Anyway, <laughs> you would make a very interesting Pulitzer. <laughs> I, I think Kickstarters at Indiegogo's are falling into the. I mean, it's the pitfalls of the internet, right? So this week, um, the the campaign behind uh, the other side of the wind, this Orson Welles filming question released this clip to uh vulture a site that we all enjoy on some level um of of a scene from 3 a.m uh and it was a porn this kind of not safe for work pornographic scene that orson wells edited and the other side of the wind was all over this article um and and links to the kickstarter and all this stuff and I, i i assume that it went out there because of this project and because of everyone trying to ramp up excitement to get this thing done. Um, it just feels kind of lowbrow. It feels no, no one, no one is going, everyone's distracted by your porn clip, Orson Welles. No one wants to fund your film. This is not how the internet works. And this is not how filmmaking works. Orson you can't Welles distract does people. not understand the internet. There's a think piece for you. And if you, and if you're so susceptible to like a fan documentary, I don't know I don't, I mean, I don't know what to say. These, these movies aren't movies, and I don't think most people watch them. I bet there was a lot of people who funded that Calvin and Hobbes documentary that never even saw it because it barely came out, and it's not about anything. <laughs> I'm very frustrated, if you can't tell. So you are, you How as the one person who watched give? the Calvin and Hobbes doc. I did. I, I reviewed it somewhere at some point and was very steamed. Um, but I don't know what the future holds for Kickstarter and Indiegogo's of the world. And it's only going to get tougher for people. And I don't know what would make it more attractive. Is there a future here? Or is, I don't, I mean, you bull has it right. He's going to his uh, foreign investors to, to make He's rampage. Go for the rest of his life. I don't know. I mean, I think Kickstarter for you at bull was, and this is true for many people. It's just promotion now, right? It's just to either be the provocateur and and fail in public or make a big ruckus or you do it simply because it's part of your promotional plan for your indie film. You know, this Justice League movie, George Miller's Justice League hasn't even crowdfunded yet, but they will. Like they've already, they're already talking, "Oh, well, we'll probably incorporate that we have some money, but we're going to and you know, have a Kickstarter because that's what you do. You it's it's your it's the indie film's publicity plan. Uh, it's all they have going for them, and it's diluted the crowdfunding system. I used to be so much. Dave would be having a fit if he was here right now because he hates crowdfunding now. And Does I was a, it's defender for so long, and I'm losing faith. I really don't. It at least in the film world, it doesn't seem to have legs. I don't know where it's going anymore. Man, that's so much despair. I know! Life I mean, will not find a way. What do you think is the way, then, like, for someone who was, like, looking at crowdfunding and is now seeing how desolate this is, like, what is their best option? Is it just going back to the old model of getting your indie film financed by whoever's crazy enough to write you a check? Well, I think there's still a way that strong stories can prevail on Kickstarter. I just think people aren't making very good movies or trying very hard. But people have never been making very good <laughs> you're, movies. You're woefully underestimating the percentage of films that played at Sundance this year. For example. I mean, I saw a lot of them. I was there. That were, yeah, that were partially, at least in part, funded by Kickstarter, whether it's finishing funds or production funds or whatever the case might be. Uh, I think that crowdsourcing has a bright, 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 bright future. I just, and I don't think that the failures of these mega projects have anything to do with that. 
um, necessarily, at least as it pertains to filmmakers who are not dead um, <laughs> or you, Bowl, who might as well be. Um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know if I, I, I would stress that Abel Ferrara may be more relevant, but The Other Side of the Wind struggling to get funding has very little to do with whatever movies we saw at Sundance this year that were in part well, I think part of part of it is so Abel Ferreira's film has 67 hours to go from this recording, which means it, it will only have what uh, a day and a half at when people start listening to this. They have eighteen thousand dollars and they need five hundred thousand dollars. Now I believe that that was up to a million at some point, or maybe even two million, and they oh, reduced really? the goal to try and meet it. They will not. But this is clearly, I mean, David, correct me if I'm wrong, but Abel Ferreira. Uh, track record from the past three years i did not see his last film i only saw um last days on earth 444 what is that you didn't see welcome to new york you didn't see pasolini oh no i did not get to see pasolini which i heard pos- some positive things about. i did not especially care for okay. pasolini but uh you know we'll so, so but, i think uh, the issue here well, is that a lot of people are seeing kickstarter as the step like down as the way to be like you know i'm getting away from my personal failures and b- doing projects the right way um, but in reality, they're stepping down because they failed too many times. They're failing their way to Kickstarter, which is not a positive thing. That's not going to help Kickstarter, and it's not going to help them. Well, I think that positive or negative, it's just stressing the importance of narrative in a in a Kickstarter campaign. I think that you know it it does tell a story, and people remember that story, and it influences if they're at all familiar with the Kickstarter campaign, it influences how they see the movie. I think now when I see smaller indies, I assume that they were crowdsourced in some way, some way, shape, or form. Uh, but I think, you know, when you saw Wish I Was Here or Veronica Mars, they were capital C crowd-funded movies. Capital and, K crowd-funded, uh, Mortal Kombat. Story. Right. Mm. Um, and I don't know when they'll get away from that stigma, movies of that size. We no longer need Kickstarter to reboot our uh, Veronica Mars uh the no, Veronica Mars of the world because we have Netflix now. That was that's actually a really funny, uh, <laughs> weird vestigial legacy of that. It was like the last thing that was a beloved TV show that like thought it had to go somewhere else other than like insert streaming giant here to return. I know, poor Kickstarter. Like it, Yahoo would have killed for that stuff now. Kickstarter has nothing going for it now. It can only revive. Where's Netflix to save Orsed Wells' last film? I don't know. They don't have the uh, demographic data that says their users are interested in it the way they did uh, for House of Cards. Well, <laughs> wish you I think were I'm actually more here. with David. Like, <clears throat> I think your uh, I think your apocalyptic view of all the crappy movies people are making is accurate patches. But I also agree with David that there's a lot of really good movies that you don't hear about getting kickstarted because they were getting kickstarted by these people's friends and family because no one knew who these filmmakers were yet. And that's well, they're also working their asses off to make people yes. see them. You know, there's so a lot basically, of documentaries. The, the lesson is that people who go through the effort wind up making good films and that lazy people make bad films. Wish they were here. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We will be back on Friday. Everybody's talking about... Na, 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 
Hello. We will no longer refer to the film by its, <laughs> it's name. Only, it will only be this musical. Only referred to by the John Williams sound cue. Uh, Edward Allen. <laughs> we're, Different movie. We're uh, we're reviewing Jurassic World, so come on back for that. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches. I'm the senior writer at Esquire.com. And I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarm.com, where you can leave comments and questions and or be angry or be sad or be happy or links to your Kickstarter page. <laughs> definitely click on it, though. Um, that's fightinginthewarm.com. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I am an associate film editor of Time on New York and the editor-at-large of... Uh, Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And I'm Kate. You oh. can find all the <laughs> uh, You pause. Damn it. Bop. Bop. Damn it. Alan. Alan. <laughs> you can also find joy by going to YouTube and searching for <laughs> Jurassic Park 3. Alan. <laughs> Joe Johnson's true gift to cinema. <laughs> and you can also find all of us, hopefully, posting video on our Facebook page Fighting in the World uh, and I'm Katie Rich you can find me at VanityFair.com or on Twitter at Katie Rich K-A-T-E-Y R-I-C-H Twitter's also a great place to uh, watch us swapping Jurassic Park jokes and uh, all of us at the Twitter feed fi- uh, Fighting in the War Room f- at F-I-T-W-R gotten so thrown off by that talking dinosaur that can't talk anymore uh, thank you for listening and we'll be back talking to you on Friday <laughs> See here I'm now by myself uh, uh talking to myself. That's that's chaos, dude. <laughs>